That brings us to Lamentation. We're going to go through Lamentations really quickly. Lamentations is, we don't know exactly who the author is. In the original Hebrew manuscripts, um, Lamentations actually doesn't come after the prophets. Or sorry, in the original Hebrew manuscripts, the Lamentations does not come directly after Jeremiah. It actually is worked in with historical books, which is interesting because it's mostly poems. It was later put directly under Jeremiah because Jeremiah ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. And Jeremiah is probably one of the most depressing prophets. And Lamentations is the talk, discussion of the fall of Jerusalem is by far one of the most depressing books in the entire Bible. And so people are like, depression, depression, excellent destruction, destruction. We'll put these together. So it's assumed that Jeremiah is the author. There's a really good chance that it probably is because he was like the only like voice of God that was truly left behind after the exile. And remember, he was left behind because Nebuchadnezzar gave him a choice. And Jeremiah chose to stay behind. But Lamentations is divided into five sections. And this is one of the other very few times that the chapters are actually in the right place. So the chapters match up with those five different sections. And the first four sections are written in acrostic, where it's the 26 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the first part starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and you get a couple of par- a paragraph with that. And then the next letter, and you can see that in your Bibles. Um, I don't know if every Bible does that, but most Bibles show the Hebrew letters, and it shows that acrostic. So this is a poetic device to make it easy to memorize, because if you know that each paragraph begins with the next letter of the alphabet, um, it's really easy to think, oh, yeah, I missed that paragraph because I just skipped a letter in the alphabet. So, a lot of, yes, there's a part of the thing you're like, how did they know these Bibles from memory? Well, one, when you don't have anything to write on, you use that muscle of your memory a lot more, and it gets a lot better. And two, everything's very poetic in the original Hebrew. And when it doesn't sound like it's poetic anymore, you realize you've left something out. And there's lots of acrostics in there to help you. There's lots of chiastic parallelism where you are showing you the A, B, C, and then it mirrors it and goes C, B, A. So there's lots of poetic devices that they use to enable their memories to help them remember, like, oh, yeah, you missed something. And when everybody's memorizing everything, it's not like when, um, you know that myth that, like, every time you watch a movie, one of the ways that they show really intelligent people is if, if you're, um, they always quote random things like Shakespeare, huge passages of Shakespeare or, or old poems and stuff. And, like, and they give you this idea that really intelligent people know how to quote really random passages, which is not true at all. Um, so, but you think like, wow, oh, there's unique people out there can do that. Well, when everybody is memorizing, you're not that specially unique and the community is keeping you accountable. So the poetic structure of it and the community, who all knows it, keeps you accountable. So Lamentation is one of those things that helps them realize, hey, we've got it all memorized because it's the acrostic. There there are five poems, and I'm going to read, I'm not going to read the whole book, but we're going to read a little bit to give you an idea of what it is. And it's absolutely, absolutely depressing. So the first poem mourns the destruction of Jerusalem. Alas, the city once full of people now sits all alone. The prominent lady among the nations has become a widow, talking about Jerusalem, because God has left. Now, we haven't seen God leave yet. We'll see that in Ezekiel. But this has been written after Ezekiel. So the idea God has left, so Jerusalem has been widowed by God. 
The princes who once ruled the providences has become a forced labor. So the mighty kings of Israel and Judah that God blessed of the Davidic covenant are now beggars in the streets. She weeps bitterly at night. Tears stream down her cheeks. She has no one to comfort her among all of her lovers. So all those lovers, the gods and the pagan nations that they made treaties with, they're not there. So she, her husband, God, has left her. And the pagan gods and the treaties and the alliances with other nations weren't there for her. So now this woman sits desolate, Jerusalem, in the middle of the filth and ruins of the city, crying and mourning because she is alone and destroyed and nobody's there to comfort her. And she is the one who drove her husband away. And she's the one who decided to trust in lovers, alliances, and gods that would never be there for her. And so she is now reaping her own decisions, her own consequences, and nobody is in mourn for her. So yes, you can sympathize for her, and you can feel for her, and that's exactly what Lamentation is doing. Lamentation is not like, you deserve it, and whoa, stop crying, you woman. Okay, Lamentations is mourning with her, so to speak. And it's, Lamentation is sympathetic toward Jerusalem, but it's not justifying Jerusalem. And that's important. We either sympathize and justify people's actions, or we condemn them and have no sympathy for them. And Lamentation is saying, I sympathize with you because you were in my city. But at the same time, God did warn you. God did warn you. She has no one to comfort her. All of her lovers, all her friends have betrayed her. They have become their, her enemies. Judah has departed in exile under the affliction of harsh oppression. She lives among the nations. She has found no resting place. All who pursued her overtook her in narrow straits. The roads of Zion mourn because no one travels to the festivals. All her city gates are deserted. Her priests groan. Her virgins grieve. She is in bitter anguish. So there are no more celebrations anymore. Her foes subjugated her. Her enemies are at ease. For Yahweh afflicted her because of her many acts of rebellion. Her children went away captive before the enemy. And that children are the children who were carried into exile. All the daughter, all of daughter Zion's splendor has departed. Her leaders became like deer. They found no pasture. So they were too exhausted to escape from the hunter. Jerusalem remembers when she became a poor homeless person. All her treasures that she owned in the days of old. When the people fell into the enemy grip, none of her allies came to her rescue. Her enemies gloated over her. They sneered at her downfall. Now notice two things keep getting repeated. One, all of her splendor and glory is gone. Now remember, that's a bad thing. A lot of times we're like, yes, it's bad to have materialism and to say, hey, look at my splendor. But at the same time, all that glory and splendor was the blessings of God. It was the blessings of God that he gave them, the, the new wine and the, the grain and all that kind of stuff. And by saying the splendor is gone, it's not like, look, your giant mansion, your Rolls Royces are gone. Oh, woe is you. It's, look, the blessings of God are gone. And the other thing that's repeated over and over again is all the people you trusted in, they have betrayed you and become your enemy. And those are the two things that keep getting repeated over and over again. You've lost the blessings because you turned to other lovers. And the lovers that you thought would protect you They've turned on you and destroyed you. And you're alone. You're alone as a result. And we can think of that in the other way too. Okay, Maybe we haven't made political alliances with our nations as individuals, 
But there are lots of things that we trusted in and put a lot of money in or a lot of time in or um, counseling in. And we weren't really going to people with the Holy Spirit who are being led by the Holy Spirit in order to trust that. And then when everything keeps falling apart, they're not really there to help us because they're being led by their own wisdom and not the Spirit of God. And I don't mean that no one in the world has anything to offer us, but when we put all of our eggs in the wisdom of the world and it's never filtered through the prayer of the Holy, in the Holy Spirit, that's not wise. That's not wise. Jerusalem committed terrible sin, verse 8. Therefore she became an object of scorn. All who admire her have despised her because they have seen her nakedness. She groans aloud and turns away in shame. Her menstrual flow has soiled her clothing. She did not consider the consequences of her sin. Her demise was astonishing, and there was no one to comfort her. She cried, Look, O Yahweh, my affliction, because my enemies boast. She did not consider the consequences of her sin. She just dove into the pleasure and did not think of the consequences. An enemy grabbed all of her valuables. Indeed, she watched in horror as the Gentiles evaded her holy temple. Those whom you have commanded, they must not enter your assembly places. All her people groan, and they search for a morsel of bread, and they exchange valuables just for enough food to stay alive. So God goes on and on, and he just basically keeps hitting those ideas. The, the, the author of Lamentations is definitely mournful. He is crying. He is sad for Jerusalem. He never wanted this to happen for Jerusalem. He never wanted to see it. But at the same time, he turns around and says, yes, but you trust in the wrong things. And, and, and you left God, and you thought your consequences weren't a big deal. And so there's this sense of you deserve what happened to you, but I'm crying, and I'm so sad that this is happening to you. And this shows the heart of God. And the sense God is saying, I was absolutely just in what I did to you. And I warned you, and you thought it was silly. And you thought it was not important, your sin or your consequences. So this is what you deserve. But at the same time, you're my child. You're my bride. And I love you. And I'm weeping and crying in total anguish because of what's happening to you. And that's a powerful picture. That's a powerful picture. That's like, that's like the, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you kind of an idea. Um, and so this is what God is saying. You're still my child. And this is what we saw in Hosea. Remember, God was like, I'm so angry at you. And I could just pound you into the ground until there's nothing left. But how could I forsake my children? And I will not completely destroy you because I'm moved by my compassion and my promises. And, and remember, God never ever explains. He never tells us why he loves us. And he never tells us why he's going to keep preserving us. But what he does tell us is that I will never violate my promises to you because my character will not allow it and because I have so much compassion for you. And there is no other being in the universe like that. There is no other being in the universe like that. So in the second poem, Yahweh is a judge. And he basically, the poet laments, Zion used to be Yahweh's footstool for his throne in heaven. So he's mourning the fact that this used to be the throne of God, Jerusalem. That the tabernacle and the temple used to be the footstool of God. But now people are starving in the streets. And children are begging for food. And people are dying. And, 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 and people are even eating their own family members to try to stay alive. 
and how we have gone from the throne of God to the utter hellish ghetto and despair of the streets. So then the third poem is reflecting the horror. And in graphic imagery, he details the horror of the invasion, the horror of people dying and being ripped apart, the horror of people starving in the streets, and all that kind of stuff. And I think what God is doing here, and God does this a lot. God does this a lot. He did this in the book of Judges, where even though Judges, sorry, in the book of um, Joshua, and we talked about this, in Joshua, God is making it very clear, I'm sending my people to kill all the Canaanites because they deserve it for their sins. But at the same time, he humanizes Rahab. She's a Canaanite woman. It's so easy to say, oh, those Japanese or those Germans or those Russians during our Cold Wars and our World War I and II and that kind of stuff, they're all here, horrible, evil, bad people, killing Jews and da-da-da-da-da. And, and we, we dehumanize the enemy as, a, as governments. That's what Hitler did to the Jews. That's what we did to the Germans. We dehumanize them so it becomes easier to hate them, easier to attack them. And, and, is, and so what God does is he says, you're all going to die, you Canaanites. You sin against me. But then he humanizes Rahab and makes her a woman of faith. And then he shows Achan, the Israelite, as the one who's sinning and acting like the Canaanites and getting destroyed. And then when he lists the destruction of the Canaanites, he just says, in the city of Hazor 1, in the city of um, Megiddo, destroyed, where the, all the other nations dehumanize their enemy and then bragged about killing them. And God doesn't do that. And I think he's reminding you that, yes, he justly punished them, but these are still his children, and he loves them. And how dare you say, I have no compassion for your fall. It's okay to say, you justly deserve that. But it's not okay to celebrate the destruction of people as if they're not human, as if they had no lives. And so what God is saying here in the book of Lamentations, as he describes Israel, is I'm not going to dehumanize them. I've made it very clear that I'm angry at you and I'm going to smash you and destroy you. But the book of Lamentations is, but you're still human. You're still the image of God. And and, and no matter what you feel and no matter what any anti-Christian today can say, how dare your God, God is mourning and in greater anguish than anybody else because this is his creation and this is children. And we need to be careful as Christians. It's very easy as Christians to say, yes, you deserve that, you evil sinners. Or, oh, look at you. And there's people who have done that, where they've stood at Ohio State, and they've condemned people and say, you deserve it. Da, da, da. And there's very little compassion. And their words are pretty accurate. They sound very much like Jeremiah, as they condemn him for sins and, and, and call it out. And in that sense, there's nothing wrong with it. But when they slander and attack and dehumanize and abandon these people emotionally in their judgment, that's not God either. God is reminding us, yes, there are evil people who will do evil, horrible things to us and people we love. And you have every right to want justice. And you have every right to be satisfied when they're punished. But you have no right to dehumanize them and turn on them and, 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 and callous your heart and enjoy their punishment and their destruction and take satisfaction in it in an emotional sense or celebrate it. And I think that's what you see with the book of Lamentations here as God does that.
So then the book, the last chapter, ends with a cry for restoration. God has promised restoration because he loves them, and the book cries out for that restoration. O Yahweh, reflect on what has happened to us, verse 1 in chapter 5. Consider and look at our disgrace. Our inheritance is turned over to strangers. Foreigners now occupy our homes. We have become fatherless orphans. Our mothers have become widows. We must pay money for our own water. We must buy our own wood at a steep price. We are pursued. They are breathing down our necks. We are weary and have no rest. We are submitted to Egypt and Assyria. In order to buy food and to eat, our forefathers sin and are dead, but we suffer their punishment. We used to have our own abundance flowing out of the land of God, and now we're dependent upon other nations. Our forefathers sin and are dead, but we suffer their punishment. Slaves rule over us. There's no one to rescue us from their power. Now, the, the, the idea here is not that slaves are actually ruling over us. Um, the idea here is that the servants of Nebuchadnezzar are ruling over us. No longer are we ruling ourselves. No longer is God ruling us, but pagan nations are ruling us. And not even the head king of these pagan nations are ruling us. He sent his servants, like his governors, to rule over us. We have become so pathetic that we just get the junior varsity officials, so to speak, to rule over us from a pagan nation, let alone our own Davidic king of our own people in the name of God. There's no one to rescue us from their power. At the risk of our lives, we get our own food because robbers lurk in the countryside. So not only does the land not freely produce, but we have to scavenger for it, and then we're at risk coming home with the food because there's people who are waiting, laying and waiting to just attack us so they don't have to do the work. Our skin is hot as an oven due to the fever from hunger. They raped women in Zion, virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes were hung by their heads. Elders were mistreated. The young men performed menial labor. Boys staggered from their labor. The elders are gone from the city gate. The young men have stopped playing their music. Everything that was great and joyful about a thriving city is now gone. Our hearts no longer have any joy. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, we have sinned. Now there you go. This is the repentance. It is usually only our brokenness and the ashes of everything that we used to trust in that we're ready to say we have sinned. Remember, they did not say that. And God says, a day will come when you will no longer say, we have been unjustly punished, but you will say, we deserve this. And only when you say we deserve this are you ready for God to come back in your life and start blessing again. And that's the point that the prophets are making. You want the restoration promises. You want this new covenant. It can only come through repentance. You have to acknowledge your sin repent. We've seen that. And that's why after 400-something years, Israel had not seen a prophet. Malachi was the last prophet around 435 B.C., And for over 400 years, they never saw a prophet. And one day, a prophet comes on the scene for the first time ever, and his name is John the Baptizer. And the first thing out of his mouth is, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Are you broken enough after 400 years in exile of your ashes? Read this poem. It's going to last for 400 years. Are you ready to repent now? Are you ready to repent? That's what God is saying. 
I don't want to destroy you. I am crying and mourning at your destruction, but nothing can change unless you repent. Our hearts no longer have any joy. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are sick. Because of this, these things, we can hardly see through our tears. For wild animals are prowling over Mount Zion, which lies desolate. Because of our destruction and our sins, we are crying so much we cannot see through our tears. That's important. I remember somebody who committed a lot of sins, and they were crying and mourning and repenting. And I remember somebody asking a question once, are you crying for everything that you lost, or are you crying because of your sin? And I never thought about that before. Usually you just see tears and crying, and you think, oh, they're, they're repentant. But sometimes people can cry just because of the things they've lost, not because of what they've actually done. And so this is what they're saying for both. It's okay to cry for the things you've lost, but not if it's just that. Not if it's just that. For wild animals are prowling over Mount Zion, which lies desolate. But you, Yahweh, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Now notice, no matter what state we're in, good or bad, no matter where we are, no matter what's happening to us, you, Yahweh, never change. You're always ruling. You're always in control. You're always sovereign. We trusted in gods who were wishy-washy and look at where we are. Now we realize that you are always the same. But you, Yahweh, reign forever. You're thrown indoors from generation to generation. Why do you keep on forgetting us? Why do you forsake us so long? Bring us back to yourself, O Yahweh, so we may return to you. Renew our life as in the days before, unless you've utterly reject us and are angry with us beyond measure. Now that's depressing. (laughs) Because it finally ends on, please save us. Please restore us. Unless you're completely angry with us forever. That is a lamentation. Now, most of the psalms that you read that are lamentations, they usually end in a positive note. Now, one thing you have to realize is that scholars believe that most lamentations, laments in the book of Psalms, were probably just a lament. And the reason you have a song of praise at the end of the lament is because the author saw God answer the prayer and then went back and added the praise to the end of the lament, and then it came into the scripture. But this is being written by somebody in the middle of the exile. And they're sitting in the ashes of destruction. And they have not seen the restoration of the people. And they have not seen the end of the exile. And so we don't get the praise at the end. We just get the depression of life sucks. And that's all we see. We know, after reading lots and lots of prophets and seeing the repetition over and over again, that God will answer that. And we know that, in hindsight, he does answer that. But remember, even one, they haven't listened to a lot of the prophets. And two, even when you know the promises of God, when you're sitting in absolute despair and ruin, and that is physically tangible in your life, and the promises of God are abstract and out there sometimes, out there somewhere, it's hard to remember the promises of God. Not only were the promises of God only spoke by some prophets that are long and gone, and you can't have them like repeated again because they're dead, because you killed them, and there is no Bible to read because it's probably been burned or never written to begin with, but you're sitting in destruction. It's hard enough when you have the believers surrounding you and the Bible to remember the promises of God when you're in ruin and suffering. 
imagine not having the Bible or the believers sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem. And that's how lamentation ends. Please save us unless you're angry with us forever. That's what they feel. And once again, like I said with the Psalms and like I said with Habakkuk, these people don't shy away from sharing their true emotions, even if it's not theologically correct. And God doesn't shy away from putting it in his word. We are so uncomfortable with bad theology being spoused in emotional ways. And God says, no, give it to me. I can handle it. I already know you feel it. You might as well confess it. Let me deal with it. And knowing that, that's what true authentic relationships are. If you're married to somebody or friends with somebody and they only are happy sharing the good things all the time, you're not getting the holistic nature of who they are. And it's hard to really connect to them. So that's lamentation.